0: Finished, finally done. You know, most days being Henry's research assistant is a great job. But this old testament thing has been a killer. I lost sixty pounds doing this. You've got mail. Henry, what are you doing? Hey, like I'm taking it easy, man. I'm finished, finally done. You can't take it easy. They just found 14 more Old Testament books. 14 more books? Someone just forgot to turn the Dead Sea Scrolls over and it's all in the back, 14 more. 14 more? What? How long is that gonna take? Well, I figured it out. If we do 28 more months, Without any Christmas breaks, without any Mother's Day, Father's Day, you can do it in 28 months. 28 yep, months. You okay with that, man? Am I okay with that? Right. Oh my goodness gracious. No! Henry, Henry, you're dreaming. Go back to sleep. Oh. 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 no, we do not have an organ in our bedroom, okay? Just want to be clear about that. Just want to be clear about that. And yes, it's true. Uh, This is the weekend that we finish the Old Testament in Focus series. It only took 107 messages, approximately four years, and my assistant, Norm, losing about 60 pounds to pull it off. But we made it. Thanks be to God. It's good to be back with our church family again. And I just want to express my deep appreciation to our staff, to all of you who uh, ministered faithfully over the summer months and not only in our services but also other ministries that, that further the mission that God has called us to as a church. And I've heard wonderful things. And so, again, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Gwen and I want to express our thanks as we do every, um, to- every year, this time of year, um, just for granting us several weeks um, during the summer months to rest and to relax, to spend time with the Lord, each other, with our family, and an additional number of weeks uh, to read and prepare for the coming ministry season. Uh, as I shared with the staff this past week, if if we want to have healthy souls, uh, we have to develop a rhythm in our lives, not unlike um, the rhythm that Christ had in his life, who faithfully carried out the assignments that God gave him, but who also regularly stopped, withdrew from the crowds to rest and to recalibrate and spend time alone with his heavenly Father. And so thank you for providing that for us, our staff, and also I want to challenge us all as a church to develop a rhythm of stopping and a rhythm of finding rest and maintaining a healthy soul with our God. And now for the fun part. I get to introduce you to all the new members of our family. And I'm going to begin by introducing you to our second grandson, Evan Levi Shore. Um, He's around four months old now. Uh, He's the brother to uh, Ella and uh, Ethan. And... uh, He's the son of our oldest son, Matthew, and his wife, Arian. And then late in June, uh, we welcomed our second granddaughter uh, into our family, Angel Ariel Shore. And uh, she is uh, the daughter of our youngest son, Michael, and his wife, Becky. What a joy it is to have uh, these loved ones um, in our home. Whenever I'm around them, you know, they 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 teach me all over again what is most important in life—the importance of slowing down, getting on the floor and being real goofy, and 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 just enjoying the little things of life and not taking yourself so serious—and um, that's wonderful. Finally, I just want to say a special hello to all of those of you who are meeting in other venues here at Central. Those of you who are meeting uh, in our home church networks or other sites in the province. Those of you who are meeting at our Northwest Regional uh, Center at the Crowfoot Center. And uh, those meeting in our church down in the Bridgeland area. And today we especially uh, want to uh, say a big hello uh, to those of you who are meeting at the official opening of our new regional in Airdrie. And... uh, We're excited about what God's doing and, and uh, will be doing in the community of Airdrie as well as all of, through all of our regionals here in the city. So uh, we just give God all the glory for the great things He is doing and continues to do. Um, would you stand with me and join with me in prayer as we prepare to get into God's Word? Our Heavenly Father, we, we do want to thank you, Lord, for the joy it is to know you, the privilege it is to be part of your church, to be involved in the greatest cause ever given to man. We thank you, Lord, also for um, all that we've learned through this walk through through the Old Testament, things we've learned about you through the lives of others and the relationship with you. And Lord, as we now look at this final message that's It was given to you through Malachi for the people of his day, but also for the people of our day. I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would focus our minds. And then, Lord, you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way that you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, our family watched a movie entitled Greed on television. It was about an older man who was very wealthy, but also had a bit of a crusty, controlling personality. His adult children were spoiled rotten. They had a very unhealthy sense of entitlement. And over time, the old fellow began to wonder whether his family loved his money more than him. And so he decided to find out by concocting an elaborate scheme. He had his lawyer, his accountant, and his banker call the entire family together and announce that due to a series of bad investments, their father had lost all of his wealth, including his stocks and bonds, his vast property holdings, his mansion, and that even his precious furniture and paintings and cars and toys would be auctioned off in the near future. And then the lawyer added this. He said, your father is not only broke, but he has no place to stay and no means of supporting himself. If none of you are willing and prepared to take him in, he will have to go to a state-run facility for seniors. Well, his family was understandably stunned by the news and after a lengthy moment of silence, they lost it. They just became undone. All their true feelings surfaced and their selfishness and their greed was exposed as they poured out their disgust and blasted their father with cruel and hurtful words. And then they informed him in no uncertain terms that he was on his own and they got up out of their seats they marched they marched out of the place never to see him again now the old man had suspected for some time that this would be their response but he did hope that his one grandson played by Michael J Fox who seemed genuinely interested In having a relationship with him, he hoped that maybe Michael would stick around. But even he was so angry at his grandfather's deception that in the moment he stormed out and left as well. And so the old man ended up in a state-run care facility. It was a pitiful sight. Here sat a man who was incredibly rich in things and yet incredibly poor in what we all longed for most in this life to be loved and cared for to be wanted well all that changed however when a week or two later much to the surprise of the old fellow his grandson showed up and he said granddad I'm still really upset with you the way that you made us believe that you were some hot shot rich guy when in fact you were dirt poor, but I love you anyways, and you are not going to stay here. You're going to come and live with me. And from that moment on, the old man couldn't stop smiling, for he now knew that there was at least one person who genuinely loved him for who he was rather than for what he had. Now, I share that story with you because it illustrates so well this deep longing that is in every person, the longing to be loved and treasured for who we are, not for what we have, but for who we are. Now, do you know why we have all of this, uh, we, we all have this inner desire to be loved like this? Well, according to Genesis 127, it's because we're created in the image of God. And God not only loves us this way, but he wants us to love him this way. To love him for who he is, not for what he can do for us. You see, when God created us, he could have programmed us to love him. He could have programmed us to obey him perfectly. But thankfully, he didn't want a community of androids. He wanted a community of real people who had the freedom to love him from the heart. But the risk was, that meant they also had the freedom to reject him. And so when our first parents, Adam and Eve try to find satisfaction in life from the things that God had made, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that this loving relationship they had with God and with each other was fractured. But rather than destroy us, which God had the right to do at that time and had the power to do, from that moment on, God chose to be on mission to win back our love and our affection in the words of second chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 like a lovesick father God is on a mission searching throughout the earth for those whose hearts are completely his this is the grand theme of the old testament which we saw surface again and again, as we were introduced to the to the stories and the characters of the Old Testament. And this is also the overarching theme of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. The people in Malachi's days, in Malachi's days, were religious. In today's um, imagery, they still attended church faithfully. But they were more in love with the things that God created than God himself. And this grieved God. And so through the prophet Malachi, God confronts them about their idolatry and their sin. And when the people hear this, they are shocked. They're incredulous. They ask, how can this be? They ask, how has our love for you diminished, Lord? And the rest of the book of Malachi records God's answer to that question. In chapter 1, God essentially says, yes, you're still religious. You still go to church. But your worship means nothing to me. Because you're just going through the religious motions. You come only for what you can get from me. And you give me your leftovers rather than your very best. In chapter 2, God essentially says, you've grown indifferent to my commands. You have a cavalier disregard for the covenant of marriage. And you're breaking faith with your spouse, your flippantly divorcing her so you can run off with a younger more attractive woman that's not even aligned with you in your faith on top of that you are depriving people justice you're neglecting the poor the widows and the orphans among you which brings us to chapter 3 And God's third example of how the people of Malachi's day had drifted from their first love. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me and join me in reading this together. We're beginning in verse 7. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? That you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. May God add his blessing and understanding to us. You may be seated. Now, sandwiched between the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament is 400 years of silence. A time when God did not lead any person to pick up a pen and to write material that would later be included in the canon of Scripture or that which we now refer to as the Bible. During this time, the nation of Israel gained its independence for a short period of time. And it was also during this period of time that the sect which later came to be known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, they found their roots here. And it was also during this period of time when God was arranging a series of events that would pave the way for the coming of the Messiah Jesus, whose coming was also prophesied by Malachi. And yet I find it interesting that just prior to four centuries of silence and the coming of Jesus the Messiah, one of the last subjects that God talks about is money. And I just want to say that I'm talking about money this morning, not because it's my favorite subject to talk about after returning from a summer break. I'm talking about money this morning because God, God's Word talks about money here in Malachi. And I believe that he does that because money represents this world. It represents the things that God created, the temporary things of life, which almost more than anything, money has the capacity and the power to steal our affection away from God. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus spelled it out very succinctly. He said, you cannot serve God and money. You have to make a choice what the focus of your worship is going to be. And again, again, the problem is not money itself. The problem comes when we want it too much. When we want it more than God, which is called greed. Greed is loving money more than the Lord, or anyone else, or anything else. It's being excessively preoccupied with it, overly anxious about it. And that's why in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard against all forms of greed. And if you read through the Gospels, you see that on a number of occasions, Jesus kept reemphasizing this theme. Watch out for greed in your life. And I believe that he reemphasized it because he knew we tend to to be blind to greed in our own lives you know I've had a lot of people confess all kinds of sins to me down through the years not because I asked them to but because they felt impelled to but I can't hardly remember a time when someone said pastor I'm spending too much money on myself. Most of us tend not to be aware of how greed sneaks up on us. And this was true of the people in Malachi's day. I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because as I mentioned a moment ago, they were giving God their leftovers rather than their very best. You see, in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, God specifically spelled out that when a person brought a young sheep or a bull to be sacrificed as a sin offering, the animal was to be without defect. It was to be the best of the herd, the one that would fetch the highest price in the marketplace. In other words, it was to cost a person something, in large part to communicate one's love and appreciation to God for his forgiveness, but also to acknowledge that forgiveness is costly. And yet, instead of looking for the best animal in the herd, the people of Malachi's day, they would wander around their flock looking for that animal that was teetering, kind of leaning against the barn door, on its last legs, ready to keel over and die, either from disease or old age. And then they'd say, oh, here's the one. And I'm not going to get much for him in the marketplace anyways. Let's offer this one to God. Reminds me of the story Paul Harvey told about a woman who called in to the Butterball Turkey Company And she asked if it's still okay to eat a turkey that had been at the bottom of her deep freeze for 23 years. (laughs) I don't know how that happens, but the representative told her that as long as it had been properly frozen, the turkey would still be safe to eat. But, he said, the flavor would be so long gone, it wouldn't be worth the effort. That's what I thought, she said. I think I'll donate it to the church. <laughs> See, that's how a lot of people in Malachi's day approach their giving. They gave grudgingly. They gave as little as they possibly could and still look like they were committed in God's eyes, as if they were fooling him. They gave that which didn't cost them anything. They gave God their leftover time. They gave God their leftover energy. They gave God their leftover creativity. They gave God their leftover pocket change. And what they didn't realize was their misplaced priorities revealed greed in their lives. And in chapter 1, verse 6, God says, you show contempt for my name when you do that. When you give me your leftovers. Now secondly, we know that greed and materialism was a big problem in Malachi's day because they weren't giving hardly at all. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. God called him on it. He said, you're robbing me you're not giving your tithes and offerings. You see, another way to assess how greedy you are is to look at how generous you are. The more greed gets a hold of you, the less you're inclined to give. The less greed has a hold of you, the more inclined you are to give. And what God's saying to the people of Malachi's day, and also to us today, of course, is one reason that I'm asking you to give generously and regularly is because giving breaks the power of greed and the power of money and the power of materialism in your life. Giving robs money of its power. God has ordained it to be so. God gave His only Son, Jesus, who came and died, and by His grace set us free from greed and selfishness. Through his son Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God gives us the most important things in life. He gives us um, the, uh, the gift of his grace and mercy and forgiveness, a relationship with him, his love, his joy, his peace, and life everlasting. Folks, you can't buy those things. They're given to us freely through the grace of God. And you see, when we follow His lead, when we give as Jesus gave, we rob money of its power in our lives. For example, we hold, say, a $50 bill in our hand. And as we prepare to put it in the offering, or as we prepare to give it to someone who's in need, we are saying really to that money, you hold no power over me because I freely give you away. That's the first reason that God wants us to give. To break the power of money in our lives. A second reason God wants us to give is to be reminded that all that we have is from God in the first place. Tithing tithing means tenth or ten percent. And you see, the people of that day, they lived under the law of Moses, which specifically called them to give ten percent of their money, their crops, their livestock to their place of worship. And they were to give it as an act of worship to God. Now, a question that I'm often asked is, is the tithe still a requirement for Christ's followers today? Well, you see, an important principle of biblical interpretation is to look at the Old Testament teaching through the lens of Jesus and the teaching of the New Testament. And it's really on that basis that I do not believe the tithe is compulsory for Christians today. But I do believe there is a tithe principle in the Bible that came long before God gave the law through Moses. It's a principle that we see in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, in the life of Abraham when he tithed to the high priest Melchizedek. And a principle that Jesus alluded to and also commended the religious leaders of his day for their practice of tithing. You read about that in Matthew 23, 23. Randy Elcorn says, Being under grace does not mean living by lower standards than the law. On the contrary, in Matthew 5, Jesus systematically addressed such issues as murder, adultery, and the taking of oaths. And if you read that passage or that sermon that he gave, he makes it very clear that his standards were much higher than those of the Pharisees. The Pharisees just looked at the external action. Jesus began to meddle with their hearts. He began to look at what was going on in their hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and also chapter 9 is one of the most complete teachings of the New Testament on giving. And Paul says um, in those chapters to the church, he says, you need to excel in the grace of giving. You see, here too, the call is for a higher standard, not a lower standard than the tithe. Randy Alcorn says that most people To most people, the term grace-giving simply means give what you feel like. The problem is, he says, most Christians just don't feel like giving. And as we've learned in our study today, the less we give, the more greed has power over us. And the more we're inclined to worship the temporary things of life. Now, I should point out that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to give cheerfully, He wants it coming from the heart. But I believe that in the same way that God instituted the law to help us to see our need for Christ and His salvation and to experience the joy of our salvation, so He instituted the tithe to help us to learn about the joy of giving. And I say that because if you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23, In that passage, God actually spells out the purpose of the tithe. And this is what it says. That you may learn, that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Notice it says the purpose of the tithe is to teach us The joy of putting God first in our life. To teach us the joy of putting God first in our giving. And the tithe is a good place to start the journey. Let me explain what I'm saying to you this way. On the screen in front of you is a picture of my granddaughter, Ella. Ella's about three years old. Now, for some time now, whenever her family um, came over to visit us, her mom and dad would point to me and they'd say, look, Ella, there's grandpa. Go over and give him a hug and kiss and tell him you love him. Now, early on when they asked her to do that, you know, she kind of turned around, and, and I'm sure when she did, the look on her face said something like, hello, why would I want to go and hug that old guy? <laughs> but they kind of insisted, and after much coax, coaxing, Ella would come over and obediently do what they would asked. Now, while I appreciated the gesture, you know, it wasn't one of my most memorable moments, because, you know, Inside, I just kind of knew that, that, that she was secretly just kind of gritting her teeth and hugging me out of this sense of duty. But over time, that began to change. And, and, you know, I'll never forget the day when Ella, on her own, without any coaching, in fact, her parents weren't even around, came running up to me, wrapped her arms around me, gave me a kiss, and said, I love you to bits. And now she does it on her own volition most of the time because, of course, she realizes how wonderful her granddad is. (laughs) But you see, she got to that place in large part because her dad and mom taught her to go and give granddad a hug. And so it is with giving. We tithe initially. We offer our first fruits initially because God asks us to. But in doing so, we begin to experience the joy of giving. We begin to experience the impact that our generosity is having in the world around us and in our church. And we not only begin to give freely, but... We begin to give all the more. Now, if we can learn to give without the tithe, that's fine. But the giving track record of professing Christians today in North America seems to clearly indicate that we are not learning to give. I asked Norm, my assistant, to kind of check the Stat Canada reports And what he found was even lower than what I thought. Do you know that the average Canadian gives less than 1% of their income to any kind of charitable cause? And that the average church attender does just a little bit better? Around 2%? If that doesn't shake you up, Let me bring it closer to home. I asked our treasurer for a breakdown of giving in our church. And of the over 7,300 people who contribute to the ministry of our church, more than half, over 4,000, gave less than $4 a week this last year. That's less than $200 a year. An additional 1800 gave less than $40 a week, which is less than $2,000 a year. Now, I realize that there may be some who make less than $20,000 a year. That's a reality. But I also know that the average income in Calgary is well over $60,000 a year. And friends, assuming that our church reflects that average, That tells me that at least 80% of us have a lot of room to grow, as Paul says, in the grace of giving. You know, if Malachi were here, of course, I wouldn't know what he would say after hearing that. But I have a feeling that he might say something like don't raise your hands in worship to God singing all to Jesus I surrender while you're robbing him of the barest minimum of what he asks you to do in his name to advance his kingdom cause. Now notice in verse 10 they were bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse of the temple. The tithe in that day was given to their place of worship to be used for three purposes. It was to support the priests and the Levites. In other words, those who served God vocationally. It was used to meet the needs of the poor in the community. And it was used to meet the expenses of carrying on the temple and the temple sacrifices. So how does that translate into the New Testament era? Well, in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, the believers in the early church, it says they brought their goods and laid them at the apostles' feet. Instead of everyone doing their own thing, they pooled their resources together. And as you've heard me say a number of times before, when we pool our resources as a church, we are able to have much, a much greater impact together than each of us doing our own thing. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructed the Corinthian church to set aside money on the first day of the week to give to the poor in Jerusalem. And so they were pooling their resources. Steve Matheson points out that the New Testament pattern seems to be believers did the bulk of their giving through their local church. He says, instead of doing our own thing totally dependent of other belief independent of other believers the pattern of the new testament is to give to our local church which feeds us spiritually and to trust its leaders to use those resources to meet the mission that god has called us to which includes paying salaries of pastors and missionaries meeting the needs of the poor locally nationally internationally Funding ministries designed to reach out and also to disciple children, youth, and adults in our city and around the world. And yes, also to pay mundane things like utility bills. But having said all of that, please remember this the reason God is making an issue about tithing here is not because he's broke and needs more money. It's because the people of that day, their lack of giving was a clear indicator that greed was winning the day in their lives and that they were drifting from God. Giving isn't fundamentally about money. It's about the condition of our heart before God. Tithing is only a reminder that God doesn't own 10% of my income. He owns it all. What God is saying here is never forget that if it weren't for me, you wouldn't have anything. And you say, oh, wait a minute, Pastor. It was my ideas. It was my creativity. It was my hard work that got me to where I'm at. Friend, who gave you your mind? I mean, God could have created you a turnip. (laughs) If it weren't for God, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. If God took his hand of blessing from your life, you wouldn't even have the health to work. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, this is what he says about that. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. God owns it all. He's called us to be his managers of whatever it is that he's entrusted to us. And he wants us to enjoy it, he wants us to develop it, but we don't own it. And we acknowledge that we don't own it in a very practical way, and that is when we generously give back to God. On the other hand, when we're greedy, we not only rob God we not only fail to contribute to a needy world, but we're robbing ourselves of the blessing that God wants to send our way. Look again at verse 10. God says, Test me in this, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Now again, as you've heard me say many times, This is not a give to get more kind of scheme. This is not God's spiritual lottery plan. The way some television preachers want us to believe. But what God is saying here is you honor me by giving me first place in your life and by being generous and I will honor you. I'll protect your backside and I will bless you. Now, that blessing may come in the form of financial blessings at times, but more often it comes in other ways that God in His sovereignty deems best for us. Even if we see no evidence of His blessing, we need to trust Him that He is blessing us in ways we're not even aware of, and one day we're going to... We're going to... um, Uh, It's going to be revealed to us in glory. You know, in Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Another way to read that verse is where your money is, there your heart will be also. And what that means is what we do with our money reveals who or what our real God is. It reveals the idols in our lives it reveals who or what it is we really love and really trust Tim Keller he gives several excellent examples of this which are very helpful it was helpful to me as I read it and so I'm just gonna quote him for a few moments here this is what he writes I like giving money away but it is something of an effort but it is never an effort for me to buy a book Never. I can buy any book at all. I want it on my shelf. The newer, the more expensive, the better. Why? Because I get my identity from being an authority, a teacher, a preacher. I like to hear people say, oh, you know so much. So that is the thing I fight with all the time. Is my main identity Resting on what Christ thinks of me and how he loves me and what God thinks of me in Jesus? Or is it that people say, oh, you are so smart? Now, there are people who find it effortless to spend money on clothes. What does that show? The money is not the idol. The money shows that the approval you get and the sense of being pretty or the sense of being handsome is way too important to you. And you can say that Jesus Christ is my identity, but actually your looks is your identity. And that's a fight that you need to fight. And then there are people, he says, who are pretty well off but you are proud about how frugally you live. In fact, nobody knows how well off you really are, except you. But the reason you don't give your money away in proportion to that which God calls you to, the reason it's all socked away somewhere is because you're trying to control your own environment. You're not an approval freak like some of us. You're not a power freak like others of us no you're a security freak you're a control freak and it is your way of saying that through money I can control my world people spend money on getting the big houses they spend money on getting into the big right circles the powerful circles they spend money on getting expensive clothes Money isn't the idol, but money shows you where your idols are. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is your heart. An idol is looking at something like your body or the romance that you're in, your family, looking at your power, looking at your position, and saying, if I have that, then I am somebody. And we're all prone to look at something besides Jesus and say, if I have that, I'm somebody. And what we do with our money shows us what we're truly treasuring. However, every other treasure but Jesus will enslave you. If you say, I'm okay because I'm smart, Or because I have these degrees. If you say I'm okay because I'm pretty or handsome. Or if you say I'm okay because I'm powerful. Or if you say I'm okay because I'm the best at my job. If you treasure these things more than Jesus. You. These things will ruin your life. And that's because you have to have them. You panic if you don't have them. You panic if something goes wrong. You will do anything to have them. You will cut corners. You will cheat. You will stab people in the back because you just have to have that. But you see, Jesus Christ is the one treasure who died to purchase you. He just had to have you. And all he wants is you and me. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6:24, you can't serve two masters. You can't worship God and money. It's impossible. And that's also why all the way through our study of the Old Testament, over and over again, through the example of the great patriarchs and the prophets, he calls us to trust him and to hold all that he's given to us with an open hand and to be generous. Because the more we give, the more we will be liberated from worshiping and clutching on to the temporary things of life, which will all disappoint us one day. The more we will see ourselves the way that God sees us, and the more we will experience the joy of loving God with all of our heart. I'm going to close with this. The book in the Academy Award-winning movie Schindler's List tells the story of Oscar Schindler who was able to save condemned Jews from the gas chambers by employing them in his factory. But keeping them was costly. And so, even though his business couldn't afford to keep them, in order to keep things going, and to save the lives of his Jewish employees, Oscar Schindler began to liquidate his own personal assets to help as many people as possible. And at the end of the story, the Nazis are defeated and the total impact of Schindler's efforts and generosity are revealed. And as the Jews who survived because of his generosity gather around him to thank him, Shinder looks at his car and he looks at his gold pin and he begins to weep as he realizes that he could have done more. He looks at his few remaining possessions that will one day rot and rust and he begins to cry out, I could have done more. I could have done more. Friends, we have this one life to make an eternal difference in our world for Jesus Christ. There are so many ways that God wants, so many things that God wants to do through our lives, through our talents, and yes, through our money. Let's not wait until it's too late to discover what didn't happen in God's kingdom because we weren't generous. I can't tell you about all the people that we meet on a regular basis who have a vision from God to make a difference in the world who have no support. I pray all of us will come to understand and to live the truth of the words of missionary C.T. Studd, who said, Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May it be so in our lives, to the glory of God and for the sake of a world without Christ. Let's stand for closing prayer. five minutes after we die we're going to know exactly how we should have lived our lives five minutes after we die we're going to know exactly what we should have done with our money I want us to take a moment to ask ourselves if I were to die tonight what will I have wished I had given away while I still had the opportunity what will I have wished that I had done While i still had the opportunity ask the lord to bring clarity to that question and when he gives you that answer ask him to give you the courage through his spirit to do what he would have you to do just take a moment and just talk to him about that right now and ask him to show you what he would have you to do. Heavenly Father, once again, I want to thank you for all the things that you taught us through the words, the teachings of the Old Testament, through the characters of the Old Testament, through the principles that we find all the way through this incredible book. And thank you, Lord, for words through the prophet Malachi I'm sure that this has been a hard message to hear I know it's been a hard message to give but I thank you for them because Lord we know that you love us that you have our best interests at heart we know that even your negative commands are given for a positive purpose and we praise you for that Thank thank you for helping us to see in a new way that we can't serve two masters just like we can't go in two directions at the same time. Thank you for teaching us that we break the power of greed in our lives by being generous. Forgive us, Lord, for loving and worshiping the things that you've made more than you, our Creator God. Or drifting from you. I pray that you, we will leave here with a new understanding and a resolve to give our lives totally to you and to invest in that, Lord, which will have an eternal impact. I pray that as we do that you will help us to experience the joy of giving and even more the joy of trusting in you totally and the joy of loving you with all of our heart for I pray it in the precious name of Jesus and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace in the name of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit end.